welcome to the Holy Smokes Podcast, a show about faith, friendship, fine tobacco and drink. I'm Steve Ryder, and we are on Carl Muller's porch in, so I want to sound Coloradan, Louisville? Louisville. This is not Louisville. It's yes. spelled the same, and many of my Kentucky friends want to point out the error of my ways when I tell them it's Louisville, but uh, <laughs> it's like St. Louis, right? You know? Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's beautiful Louisville, Colorado. And Louisville, for those that don't know, is, I'd say, what? It's probably southeast of Boulder, kind of between yeah. Boulder and Ar- Arvada? Yeah, it's kind of out there. We call it a suburb of Boulder. That's where, okay. you know, we uh, have a lot of friends, a lot of good things go on in Boulder. And uh, it's really a beautiful little town, quaint, former mining town. You know, yeah. the, when I, you think of Colorado, you think of a town like Louisville, right? This yeah, is this, the way it is. Driving through the downtown, I was like, whoa, this is just a cool little town. Yeah. That's obviously growing a whole bunch on the outskirts, but downtown, it still feels like an old town like I grew up in around in south central Wisconsin. Yeah, it's an all American town, lots of, you know, 19th century Victorian houses, and, and it's frankly, much more affordable than Boulder. <laughs> and slightly a little bit more conservative than Boulder. Let's put it that way. <laughs> All right, so... We are in the wild, as they say. Yeah. We're out here. We are out on the front porch. It's a little nippy. It's probably in the mid to upper 30s. Yeah. Cloudy, kind of overcast today. But we are catching Carl, as every listener has has, has known, if they've listened to the very the trailer episode where we kind of talked about the show carl has been moving to orlando and he's kind of set up now but he's also dude you got so much stuff going on (laughs) that so i actually drove up to Louisville, which is probably about an hour and a half almost two hour drive depending on traffic just to catch you for this free hour (laughs) while the movers are packing up stuff to take out to oceanside california right right well, we just go where good cigar culture is. That's where that's decidedly <laughs> Orlando. Orlando, Colorado, Southern California. And Southern California. Yeah, we have some really great Southern California. We, my wife and and such, grew up in Southern California. So our our roots, if you call them that, if we have yeah. roots at all, are Southern California. And even though I grew up on the East Coast, and there's so many good cigar places down there. We in Oceanside, we have one, the Grotto. You've been there. It's just a great. On right on Pacific Coast Highway yeah. in Oceanside, and you know the, you've done so many great podcasts from the Orange County crew. We know those guys really, yeah. really well. So, and then of course Florida. Florida is one of the last. It's like paradise for cigar smokers. Almost every outdoor restaurant you can go, you'll see guys, some gals, some chicks with sticks. Yes, <laughs> uh, they're doing the cigar culture. It's really great. So yeah. we love it, all these places. All right, so Carl, first question, what you smoking? I am smoking an Illusione Ultra, a very beautiful, well-made, uh, smaller cigar, but yeah. just a pleasure to uh, light up on this morning, Monday morning, just enjoying it. Well, I think three of the four that Howard had sent from Illusione, the Ultras, he sent me four have been smoked on the podcast. And <laughs> so far, everyone, including myself, have absolutely loved it. Your early thoughts. Yeah, my early thoughts are it's it's a very smooth draw. It's tight, but not a hard draw. It's got a very warm and uh, almost refreshing or soothing 
taste. I'm not the best at the vocabulary. No. My cigar vocabulary consists of, I like it. <laughs> or, uh, I don't like it. <laughs> yeah. But it's really, it's got a lot of strength to it, but it's not overpowering, that's for sure. All right. And then it. I have a Providencia hostage. Mm. So Jeremiah with Providencia. Love those guys. Gave me uh, two of these, and this is the first one that I've smoked. I think, I think... This is the blend, and Reed thinks this is the blend. So he came to Reed Grafke, for those that don't know. He's yeah. one of the owners of Providencia Cigars. He's been a staple in the Colorado Springs group for, Holy for a while. Guy. He's, just, he's an incredible dude. I can't wait to get him on the podcast. Reed, I hope you're listening. Dude, I want to get you on early 2020. But Reed handed out a few of new blend is what he said. Mm. And after I smoked the first one, I was like, whoa, this quite possibly could be one of my new favorite cigars because... Now you're making me jealous. So so (laughs) this one is, I don't know if this is, so Reed, apparently Providencia had a few blends that were coming out around the same time. And he's like, I think it was the hostage. Mm. And so far, so good. So far, this is just, I'm a Maduro guy and this is a nice dark, dark stick. And that just, the flavors are just outstanding. Have Have you had their Trinitas, Providencia? I love that cigar. And for the money, it's one of my, well, we'll get to this later. It's one of my dollar for dollar best smokes out there. So yeah, some of these sticks that are coming out now too, I think are, they're rejuvenated blends that for a lot of reasons, technical, political, societal reasons, a lot of the older blends are being brought back, old names that are being brought back because it's just the way things are moving. It's a lot easier to work with those historical good cigar blends. All right. So Carl, Mm. You said you grew up on the East Coast. You're a Jersey kid. I am. Jersey boy. <laughs> Where in Jersey? <laughs> well, I grew up outside of Manhattan. My dad worked in Manhattan uh, growing yeah. up in the textile industry down lower Manhattan. His office was literally, I remember growing up as a kid, going to my dad's office. It was, a, it was an office that, that its corner had the Empire State Building right across the street, and you could see the Chrysler Building from the other. <laughs> I was classic New York City kind of experience. But here's the irony. We grew up in a little town called Rivervale, New Jersey. It was about 30 miles from downtown Manhattan. But I had a three-mile woods behind our house. I grew up hunting. You know, we shot raccoons with BB guns. And we had an amazing childhood that was pretty much in the woods, not in the city. And when I actually grew up and later had a business trip to Manhattan, I got a thought one time. I said, you know what? I had a rental car and I'm just going to go and drive around my old neighborhood. Yeah. It took me less than an hour. It took me like 45 minutes to get there. And I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but where you have an experience that you had during childhood. Yeah. And I used to think New York City was so far away. It was, (laughs) it was, you know, miles and like, you know, we'd go from the country and go into the city and no, it wasn't that way at all. Um, Yeah. I grew up there. My mom, my dad. My sister, we had a nice little suburban house and enjoyed it uh, very much. But um, as they say about New Jersey, it's a good place to be from. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So moved on from there. uh, College and everything else took us west. So we went west. And college was Penn State. Yes. um, Grew up watching the Joe Paterno show on television. And back in the day, this is before ESPN. This is before everybody's podcast about every team and you knew everything. It was amazing to see this 
exposition of what they were doing as a team. And, and so I really fell in love with the football program. <laughs> Can't say I was actually interested in the academic side of, yeah. of life. But yeah, so we enjoyed that. There was uh, four years, always been an Nittany Lion fan. It's been a little disappointing as we've encountered some bumps in the road this year. But uh, we'll get back to uh, national championship level, I think, in the next decade or so. Well, you and I have talked. Penn State was the first college football team that I really fell in love with. I think it was like the bowl season of 1989. I was oh, yeah. early in high school. Blair Thomas was their running back. Yes. And I just remember I just remember watching Blair run and just admiring the simplicity of those jerseys and the simplicity of, this hel- of their helmets. Yes. And this little dude with a big freaking glasses that was just roaming the sidelines. And I was just, I was fascinated <laughs> with that team. Because, yeah. I mean, in 1989, Wisconsin Badgers were awful. Mm. They had just, I think, in the throes of the Don Morton era, or yeah, Don it was Morton before was before the Ron Dane and yeah, all those yeah, it was, guys. It was, yeah, it was before. Yeah, it was the yeah. year or two before Barry Alvarez came yes, on board. And, changed and everything. So, and Wisconsin was just—they were reeling. They were one of the worst yeah. programs. And so to watch this team with this little coach, I absolutely fell in love with the school, and it was heartbreaking to watch yeah, what was happened sad. with the Sandusky stuff. It, well, you know, I think all of college football learned a big lesson in that scandal that it's not enough to just go through the motions when it comes to abusive situations. It's not enough to check the process boxes. Yeah. And candidly, I I was very disappointed the whole thing uh, went that way. It was mind-boggling. We'll talk a little bit later about subsequent things. But, you know, the two coaches that you, when I was growing up, you looked to for the fundamentals of life were John Wooden and Joe Paterno. John Wooden, I absolutely love. I, I met him at Focus, and he was just uh, what unbelievable a, he's human an being. incredible human being. And in many ways, you know, that was Joe Paterno's aura. And totally, unfortunately, yes. it just didn't end that way. And I think there's a lesson there. Perhaps the preacher in me will preach the lesson <laughs> of finishing well sometime and see how that goes in that direction. But... Yeah, I really felt like uh, Penn State football, when I was growing up, what I would say was football in its purest form. It was, we are Penn State, and we have no names on our jersey, no logos on our helmets. I mean, Riddell must be so happy when they made helmets for Penn State (laughs) because you didn't have to add anything. You didn't add any color to it. You just made the helmet. It was white. And I honestly enjoyed that experience. It was first time with really big-time football, you know, uh, high school football and other things in my uh, world were Did you play in high school? I did, I did. I played high school. In fact, I was recruited. Long story short is I actually tried to walk on at Penn State. This is sort of the hubris of an (laughs) 18-year-old. I was recruited by a few smaller schools, Lock Haven State, actually thought about going I was recruited by Princeton I was an outside linebacker okay yeah played Beautiful. outside linebacker yeah, yeah. Uh, rover back we called it yeah. and so it was sort yeah. of a halfway between defensive back and and um, outside linebacker not a lot of passing in those days yeah totally <laughs> you know yeah. it was all running backs but yeah uh, thought about some of those other schools I have to tell you the story that my family remembers fondly and told me about for years growing up is I had a, uh, a recruiter from Princeton come to our house um, wow. Ivy League, you know, yeah. Tigers. Yeah. And 
I thought, well, yeah, I'll talk to him, but I'm going to Penn State. I, you know, I was like, I'm really set on it. Hadn't been accepted yet, but I knew I was going to yeah. you know, get there. No interest from the football team, but, but that's a whole other story. Uh, he said, you know, you could play here, and there's, you know, unfortunately we don't do athletic scholarships, but we have a lot of other ways that we can handle this. And, you know, here's one of the things that I learned in life is 18-year-olds should not be trusted with any decision-making at all. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so... I met this guy, and the only thought that I had was, he's a really a dweeby guy. <laughs> and I don't want to be at a school where they send dweeby guys out to recruit. And so talked to him for a little bit, but you know, said no and didn't even apply. But uh, also West Point was talking to me at the same time. Mm. And uh, met a guy through a friend of my son's who was in, at West Point about the same time and did play football for him. So yeah. I thought, man, what? What was I thinking? That one was I didn't want to be in the military. Yeah, you know, that, but, that, yeah. You know, so. So you go to Penn State. Where do you go afterwards? Well, at Penn State, I got involved with uh, Campus Crusade for Christ, the uh, Christian ministry. Actually, I would say that's really where I gave my heart to Christ. I grew up in a Christian mm. home, had all of the terminology. Yeah. And my parents actually were really quite conservative Christians. They were very, very fundamental Baptist kind of people. Um, but that, of course, elicited a pretty strong rejection impulse yeah. on my part. Same. So Totally same. I kind of yeah. dropped all it. of Christianity when yep. I went off to college. Yep. Um, fill in the blank here at Penn State, right? So joined yeah. a fraternity, did all that. But through a lot of circumstances that were, at the time, particularly challenging for me, breakup of a girlfriend and other things that, you know, at the time seemed like cataclysmic, I started searching. I started saying, you know, there's got to be something more to life. Um, and a fraternity brother of mine had uh, come to faith through Athletes in Action. He was a uh, president of our fraternity. He was the re- guy that recruited me to the fraternity in the first place. And just a real guy's guy. He's now a pastor. Bob Flayhart, if you're listening, uh, he's a pastor at Oak Mountain Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. <laughs> very, very great church down there with a huge ministry. Yeah. And he asked me if I wanted to go to this Christian conference. We went to the conference. It was in Chicago. I mostly went because there were really good-looking sorority <laughs> girls on the bus. But it was a great weekend, and I gave my heart to Christ there. And then after that, over time, I got involved in the leadership. That was beginning of my sophomore year of college. And then um, my senior year uh, was asked to join, to consider joining the staff of, of Campus Crusade. Now it's crew. Yeah. So I said, yeah, I would do that. I wanted to be a doctor. And back in the day, crew had, I think, a bit more intentionality with their recruiting. It wasn't just like, hey, whatever you want to do, you know, follow God's will. It was like, we know God's will for your life. <laughs> <laughs> and it's to do ministry with us. And it's to do ministry. So I, I did that. And then um, well, this was always what? The, this was in the late 70s? When you graduated college, early 80s? 83. The paradigm back then was something very, very different, where if you wanted God's best, it was obviously ministry because it was pursuing those spiritual things. Mm -hmm. There there wasn't the awakening that we have now to, hey, listen, whatever your gifts are, God can use you in whatever vocation, whether it's plumbing, whether it's running a business, whether it's being a teacher, whether or it's ministry. Exactly. And it's so refreshing now to have conversations with business leaders as we do, uh, both at Holy Smokes and other places. Yes, yeah. 
And you see them hearing from God in the very same way I did as a, you know, as a college graduate and following a path of doing business and doing it to the glory of God yeah. and seeing God use them to leverage kingdom outcomes all over the world. Um, How much do you think we've missed as a body by wasting those years and not giving proper accolades and celebration to people that don't have gifts within the four walls of the church. Yeah. I still think it's a problem. I still think oh, that yeah, there's a, yeah. you know, there's people I've met who, you know, well, I, and when I became a Christian, I sold my business and I, and, you know, God bless them. That's no. great. But I think that God has entrusted you with that. And think about how much ministry we, as a business leader or as a business owner, you can do for the people who work for you, for the economics of their lives, for the way in which you can impart the godly principles of how to live a godly, quiet, you know, the Bible instructs us to live quiet, godly lives that bring people to, totally. you know, faith in Christ. Yeah. And that doesn't have to be overseas on the mission field. I, I'm really, yeah. you'll hear more of my story, I'm sure, in a little bit, but I'm big time in overseas work. I've always felt like God gifted and crafted me for some of that exposure globally, but he can use you in the local business that you have right now, right here. You don't have to do four years of seminary. You don't have to do sell your business and raise money. You just be where you are, the magnet that God wants you to be. Use the gifts that God's placed in your life mm -hmm. and the passions that he's put deep in your heart. The church I'm serving at now, uh, headed Which up- Which is? Uh, Northland Church in Orlando, Florida. Which is a big church. It's a big church. Uh, Matt Hurd is the lead pastor. Matt, you'll be hearing much more from Matt over the, I love over the time. I love that dude. Matt's he is, Matt, I hope you're listening, dude. I love you to death. You are one, one, one special dude. I'm in a lot of conversations with people around Orlando, and they ask about where I came from, and uh, I tell them Colorado Springs. They go, oh, Matt Hurd was there. I go, yes, Matt was there, and now he's here. <laughs> but for many of those, I forget why I brought that up, but... Uh, <laughs> The church I have now is fully alive in Jesus. Engaging people yeah. to be fully alive in Jesus is Ooh. our church motto. And fully alive is really that dimension of Christian living that reflects to the watching world the dynamic change that Christ has brought about in our lives. Mm -hmm. I know Holy Smokes is not just about faith. It's also about fine tobacco and fine drink. But and friendship. Uh, and friendship. That'll preach, bro. Oh, yeah. We could do all the four F points in a, in a good Holy Smokes sermon. Um, but when you have that engagement, that fully aliveness that comes with being dedicated and engaged by the Holy Spirit, it's attractive. And that can be in business or anywhere. So, yeah. so I met my wife on Campus Crusade staff. We, yes. Uh, quickly, to go through my trajectory there, we went to uh, the University of Minnesota. So how you doing? Yeah, sure, you betcha. That was my first assignment. Uh, worked uh, for a year, got trained in how to be a, a campus leader, and then I went to work at Yale University uh, in the Ivy League. Finally Ooh. made it to the Ivy League. Um, <laughs> Princeton, sorry, missed out on that one, but um, that was our, um, that was a great experience. I had to, couldn't be in campus ministry with an outside group, so I had to be officially a, an associate chaplain at Yale. Ooh. Uh, yeah, so I got a Yale ID card and 
worked with the other chaplains there, but it was really Campus Crusade, and we did our weekly meetings, and we did yeah. some evangelistic outreaches on campus, which was really phenomenal. From there, one of the outcomes we had was to uh, have a speaker come in named Dick Purnell, and Dick and I started talking, and he asked me to come along with him uh, and be trained in how to do you know, speaking and campus ministry. Uh, he worked in the Josh McDowell circle of yeah. speakers. So I moved down to Dallas, Texas, and that's where I met my beautiful wife. And we met. She was working for Josh as his scheduling coordinator, Kim. Oh. Um, and uh, Josh, oh, Josh, when I asked uh, Kim to marry me and she said yes, for whatever reason, I still have not quite figured out yet. Um, Josh came up to me. Uh, we were at a staff training in Colorado Springs. I mean, in uh, Colorado State. And he just looked at me and he said, you take care of that girl. Uh, and waved his finger right in my face, and I'm like, it's Josh McDowell. Yes, of course, I will take care of her, very much so. so. Mm. But My favorite Josh McDowell story is Focus. We surprised him with his kids. I think it was, I don't remember if it was his birthday or what, but he walked into the studio, and all of a sudden his kids were around there, oh, yeah. and they were, they were just pouring into their dad and just kind of celebrating him on the broadcast. Yeah. Just seeing the look on his face as soon as he came around the corner and saw his kids around that studio table, it was something magical. And I like Josh a lot. He's just a good he's, dude. He's genuine. Um, he's fiery, passionate, fiery. He, you know, he today, a few years ago, I wrote a book and with Moody Press, and his book was Moody Press too. And so they had us on this thing, and I had to follow Josh McDowell. <laughs> Never follow Josh <laughs> McDowell on a speaker platform. <laughs> I could have cranked up my energy to 11, you know, on the, on the, yes. on the scale. Yeah. It wouldn't have cut close. Uh, yeah. But no, Josh is a great guy. And so we worked there until the January of 1989. And then uh, Kim and I went for six months over to Eastern Europe. And 1989 was a pivotal year in Eastern European ministry. It's when the Berlin when Wall, the wall came, came down. down. Yeah. It's, and all those Eastern Bloc countries were starting to exactly. collapse and... At least the communist yeah, but structures were collapsing. and these Yeah, it was so true. We worked with pastors and church leaders. We were doing... Um, How exciting was that? Uh, it, to have this fresh... I'm telling you, Because I was in high school at the time. Yeah. And I remember just kind of watching, just being like, what's it like over there? Wondering what was going on in the culture and what was going on in the church. Because I remember at my church growing up, we would talk a lot about there, there's this open mission field now yeah. in... East Germany, in Czechoslovakia, in Yugoslavia at the time. Yep. In Russia, once once that collapsed a few years later. Yep, exactly. And we had a traveling setup. We went for six, eight weeks at a time into these different countries. All the ones you mentioned. Yeah. Um, Czechoslovakia, Yugoslavia, Hungary, Hungary, Poland, East Germany. And we had meetings. We would have one name and one phone number we would memorize. Because this is... January of 89, it was still communist, deep, dark communism. We got into, uh, I'll tell you one quick story, we went into Bratislava, uh, Czechoslovakia, now Slovakia. Um, so it was January 89 is yes. when, and then the wall collapsed. Wall came the, down the wall in, came down in October? In November, November. November of 89. And But interesting process happened during the year. Interesting. Uh, the, the story that I'll remember is we met our contact in Bratislava at the hotel. And yeah. at the hotel in those days, they took your passport. So I'm in Bratislava with my new bride. We've been married just over a year. And we're in Bratislava downtown. It is dead of winter, yeah. foggy, yeah. like 
deep fog like you can't see across the street fog but all you can see are the light the light posts yeah he drives us down this road and we're driving to this meeting that we're having with some other church leaders all unknown to us because we couldn't we yeah. couldn't have yeah. that information on us no. when we crossed the borders yeah so, so you had to memorize the number memorize the phone number memorize the contact and uh, so many stories that go along with that but so we get down the street and a cop pulls out of nowhere puts his lights on and pulls us over yeah and we're like this is it he gets out because he's Czech yeah. Yeah. and he speaks the language and we're sitting in the back seat of this car the policeman pulls him out walks him down the street and we're like we're dead we're going to be arrested and sent to communist prison forever and he points and then he you know he walks back with him and we're fully expecting to be pulled out of the car and frisked yeah. Yeah. we had some christian materials on us we were really yeah. nervous and he doesn't pull us out of the car our driver comes back in and he turns around and he goes we're going the wrong way on a one-way street <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh mm-hmm almost had to change my yeah. underwear on that one. That was definitely a scary moment. But you know, when the change was happening, I happened to be in Warsaw, Poland on the day that the communist government legalized the Solidarity Movement as a political party. Wow. Now in communist world, that was unheard of. You, yeah. you had one party system. Yeah. So any other political opposition was, was illegal. But on that day, and I'll tell you this, Steve, the day before it was all of these gray Stalin-esque buildings all the way down the street. On the day they legalized it, every window had a red and white solidarity flag in it. Every, oh every street gosh. corner had red and white paper put around, which were the colors of the solidarity yeah. movement. Yeah. And of course, Poland began the movement towards freedom in Eastern Europe. And then we were in Czechoslovakia, we were in Prague. Um, Prague was having that summer of we were there during the summer months early summer months and they were having the protests that started we went to uh, belgrade yugoslavia and they were having the protests which later resulted in the the war in the balkans the fragmentation of the country was, there was there any kind of because i don't remember this i i watched the news in high school but i didn't really the first sign that there was anything wrong in communism was the wall came down and then all of a sudden it just felt like dominoes mm. Was there any sort of there were no, notice notice yeah. within yeah. the American press? I wouldn't say the American press, notoriously reactive American press, largely unaware of what was really taking place. But when we were there in those years, it wow. was so evident that every society was rotten from the inside wow. out. The structures, you couldn't leave your hotel in any one of the countries I mentioned without having people come up to you and want to change money on the black market because our dollars and our Deutschmarks uh, from West Germany at the time were hard currency and their local currencies yeah. were worthless. They were backed yeah. Yeah. by nothing. And yeah. you couldn't buy anything with them of value. The only places you could buy things that were quality items were in these stores where you had to have the hard currency. So black market money exchanges were all over the place. You could just tell nobody believed in the system anymore. There was nothing. Wow. And, and so it was a paper tiger. And uh, of course, Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush found that out militarily. You know, we started pushing on them militarily by doing Star Wars and a few other things. Yeah. Economically, we started pushing on them by, by some of the uh, liberalization policies we had, the free market policies we had around the world. 
And of course, once those things happened, the communist house of cards just collapsed in, in 1989. Looking back now, 30 years later, mm-hmm. how fortunate do you consider yourself mm. to have been a been there when history was being made. We, Kim and I have said often it, to our kids and to others when we've had a chance to speak about it, we were literal eyewitnesses to history. That yeah. Day. Yeah, it yeah. was. That to me is it, so exciting. Four months before, we went through Checkpoint Charlie in East Berlin, and they had, you know, the communist uh, guards, they had the dogs, they had the barbed wire fences, they had the searchlights. You know, when you crossed that border from West Germany to East Germany, it was... A scary, scary thing. Four months later, people were able to drive back and forth freely, <laughs> and there was this incredible new wave of beauty um, that happened. Well, um, if listeners want to hear a firsthand account of what was going on in Berlin when the wall came down and what it was like to grow up in Berlin when the wall went up and before the wall was there, Paul Felitis. Um, I think it's probably episode number seven. Mm-hmm. You'd have to kind of look through, but look for the episode with Paul Felitas. Paul, he's I'm my telling, hero. I'm telling <laughs> listeners right now, listen to that episode with Paul because if yeah. you're and and especially if you're ever planning on coming to Colorado Springs, yeah. because you will get the best hug you will ever have <laughs> in your entire life mm-hmm. from Paul. He and I have had many many talks, and and later in my ministry when I went to Central Asia a lot and had many of the same sort of cultural experiences that Paul had while he was there with YWAM in in Afghanistan and the Pakistan and that area. He says such great stories, so many good connections with Paul. He's a wonderful dude. All right, so So, Eastern Europe. I'll speed it up because we'll we'll be here for hours and hours and hours, (laughs) which a good cigar will do for you sometimes. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So from there we went to graduate school at Trinity Divinity School. I started doing a master's program there. Where's Trinity? Uh, it's in Deerfield, Illinois, okay. uh, suburb of Chicago. Okay. While I was there, I ended up uh, working for the seminary as director of alumni relations at mm-hmm. Trinity. Really enjoyed that. Started my career in academic administration and fundraising um, there. My wife worked for a uh, benefits consulting firm. It was Hewitt Associates then. Now it's Aon Hewitt mm-hmm. and Aon uh, does benefits consulting. Um, she uh, worked in the corporate world, and I was the uh, guy studying Greek and, <laughs> and church history. Yeah. And uh, graduated in four years from Trinity. Loved that experience. Worked there the whole time, yeah. and then worked full time at Trinity after that. From there, I went into academic administrative work, um, mostly through the development and fundraising side of the house. Worked for the University of Illinois in Chicago for a few mm. years downtown. Okay. Then we moved from there. I was recruited to a small school in Utah called Westminster College and was a VP for advancement there. Uh, Great experiences, but I think a lot of people will relate to this. There are some places you go in life. A few months in, you realize, I made a very big mistake coming here. Um, So it was tough. What was it? The culture Mm. of the the school or Mm. um, was it just Utah? Well, Well, there's that. And, you know, we could go into a long discussion, I think, at some point about the differences, the similarities uh, socially in many ways with conservative America at large and the Mormon culture in Utah and other parts of of the Intermountain West. But we had two kids in Chicago. We had our first oldest, two oldest kids. Uh, Caroline was born in 93. James was born in 95. And we moved to Utah and um, we had our daughter Claire in 97 and we had our 
youngest, uh, Alexandra, born in 99. Mm -hmm. And our time in Utah at Westminster was different, not because of the Mormon culture, although that was very present there. It was really a, a situation where the uh, president of the school and various other things were, they weren't on the up and up. And I'd been working in Christian organizations largely, even, even at the University of Illinois. Yeah. My whole administrative team, the chancellor, had been former chancellor of development at Wheaton. You know, uh, my immediate supervisor in the major gift department was the VP for uh, major gifts was, she was the daughter of a minister and, uh, you know, committed Christian herself. Yeah. And all of our approaches to these things were, were really out of a Christian worldview. It was not that way at Westminster. It wasn't Mormon, but it was really different that mm -hmm. way. And so with that in mind, I had a point where I had a choice to make on some ethical things. And, you know, when you move your family across the country, you go to a city where you know nobody, and 18 months later you're making the choice to leave a position, it's really kind of mm. difficult. Mm -hmm. And I had a beautiful thing happen. We'd been going to an evangelical free church in that city, uh, about 700 people, good-sized church for yeah. Salt Lake City, yeah. Yeah. and it had a Christian school, and it was well-known. And our senior pastor, my wife and I and his wife, had scheduled a dinner months before at this restaurant in one of the canyons in Salt Lake. And we went there and uh, he goes, so how's it going at Westminster? About, just about done with the dinner. He goes, how's it going at Westminster? And I don't know if, if anybody has this experience, but I'm not a crier. But oh my gosh, really? I just started bawling. And really? I said, cause here I am, young dad. How old were you? Uh, I was in my mid thirties. Okay. And I was like, Mike, I don't know what to tell you because we just had this happen. I'm resigning and I don't know what to do. There's no way I can get another job in this town uh, with the Mormon culture. And this is the only sort of non-Mormon school yeah. that started a doctoral program at the University of Utah. Yeah. And I didn't know what to do anymore. So long story short is, he goes, well, it's really funny you say that because the reason we wanted to get together was I was going to see if you wanted to consider being an executive pastor at the church. And, you know, I just said, God, you are so good. <laughs> you knew the date of this. You knew the timing yeah. of this. Yeah. Literally the very day that I came to this decision, and this happened at Westminster, was the day that that was planned. So we worked at the church for almost two years. Allowed you to finish your doctorate. Allowed me to finish all my doctoral classes. Yeah. And then got a call from this small startup church in Southern California called known as Saddleback. Saddleback. <laughs> how did you get a call from there? Mm. And how big was Saddleback at the time? Well, it wasn't really a startup. It yeah. was still, it was 20,000 people at the time. What? Yeah. Oh and my gosh. Um, I think they're over 30,000 now on weekends. Yeah. But uh, a good friend of mine had been asked to be a teaching pastor there. And uh, he said, we need someone to take on the single adult ministry. I said, well, dude, you know I've been married to the same woman. I uh, have very little experience in singles ministry, but you get a call from Saddleback. How old were you when you got married? I was 87, so I would have been 26 years old. Okay. So yeah. you, you, yeah. you had some experience mm -hmm. after college mm -hmm. being the single dude. Being yeah, I think we've been married like to, nine years, yeah, 10 as, years as, at as, the time. As opposed to someone who got married, you know, like 20, 21. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So I had this moment where if I played baseball in the minor leagues and I got a call from the Yankees in October, 
It was kind of about the same thing. You go. Yeah. And I told my senior pastor, I said, look, Mike, I, I have this. He goes, you have to go. And I said, well, okay. So, and it, it turned out to be a great turning point. It was wonderful for my wife. Um, she was back in Southern California. And we just really enjoyed the experience at Saddleback. Four years there during the heyday of Purpose Driven Life. We used to like to say the singles ministry was the research and development lab for Saddleback <laughs> Church. We had the opportunity to pilot a lot of the small group stuff that we did during that time and wow. uh, grew the ministry there successfully. God really blessed us. We were at about, when I got there, it was about 250 single adults meeting once a week in the worship center that seats like 3,000 people. And so it was 250 in a room of 3,000. Didn't feel very momentum-wise. We started a small group-based um, singles ministry that ended up, when I left, we had about 2,200 in small groups. And we would run quarterly events that had anywhere between two to 5,000 people come to them. Um, so it was successful and had a great, great time at Saddleback. Everything was growing there then, though. I mean, yeah. it was... It was an amazing two place to, to be. five thousand. Mm. I grew up in a small town in southern Wisconsin. <laughs> Twelve hundred people mm-hmm. in nineteen the nineteen eighty census, and at Focus, I think Focus our peak employment was like fourteen hundred, fifteen hundred. Yeah, and I remember walking into chapel. We had a monthly chapel at Focus. I remember walking into chapel thinking, this auditorium holds my entire hometown. <laughs> and then for you to have you to have a young adult group that's yeah. double that. Yeah, we had some really exciting uh, big events. We brought Sometimes in triple. Uh, Neil Clark Warren, founder of um, eHarmony. eHarmony, launched eHarmony at one of our events where he... I, 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 <laughs> I distinctly remember, I just started dating my wife, probably I want to say two weeks when Neil Clark Warren came in and announced on the Focus on the Family broadcast about He Harmony, and I was yes. like, oh, if this one doesn't work out, I guess I'll try E Harmony. Yeah. <laughs> Never got around to it. Never got around to it. But, no. my, bro- but my brother did meet his wife on E Harmony. Mm. So. so those were great days. They were really exciting. But I have to say, and as ironic as it is now, sitting here as a, a pastor at a ch- large church in uh, yeah. Orlando, I have never felt like I was really... <laughs> I've been called to be a pastor, but I never felt really particularly gifted in being a pastor. I think pastor is like somebody you go to for spiritual counsel and engagement and all of that, you know, sort of personal connection stuff. Yes. My version of counseling is read the Bible, do it. <laughs> but we had a great time. And uh, from there, I was asked to lead kind of back to the Eastern European roots a ministry uh, that many people will know, uh, Open Doors, with yeah. Brother Andrew, God Smuggler. Yeah. When I was 12, and in my fundamentalist background, there were three books that I thought, this is what cool Christianity is really all about. What were the three books? One was uh, The Cross and the Switchblade, uh, David Wilkerson. And Nikki Cruz. Nikki Cruz. Yeah. Going into New York City gangs and yeah. you know being an evangelist to the gangs of New York. Yeah. The Hiding Place with Corey Ten Boom oh. and her experience in... in have, you the, ever, have you ever been to her place? I in, have. In, in Amsterdam? In, uh, yeah. No, it's in Harlem. 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 Yeah, Harlem. Yeah. Yep. It's, oh, mm. it's a special place. Oh, I love that. And that story, of course, because of the courage and the faithfulness. And she was living in Orange County, you know, in her later years. And then... She was a woman I would have loved to have met. Oh, you know, I never met her. 
Uh, my wife actually had a chance and got yeah. to hear her speak yeah. uh, in Anaheim, California, back when my wife was growing up. But then the third one was this book called God Smuggler by Brother Andrew. And this is a guy who took his Volkswagen and hollowed out all the inside compartments, yeah. filled it with Bibles, and drove it across the communist borders in the 50s and 60s. And uh, in 2003, I was asked to lead his ministry in the United States. Um, the, uh, the Open Doors USA opportunity came and it was fantastic. I went with Brother Andrew all around the country. So talk about Brother Andrew, because I really don't know a whole lot about him other than his name. Well, Andrew, Dutch, virtually a Dutch national hero. He was, he, he really? was super well-known. He was knighted by the Queen. Really? He was a resistance fighter at 16 against the Nazis uh, as a young boy. He became a Christian while a soldier, well, he would say he became a Christian. You know, obviously in the Netherlands, yeah, you, it's a Christian country. And during his era, everybody went to church. Everybody yeah. was, you know, yeah. quote unquote Christian. But he was a soldier uh, wounded in, in uh, the South Pacific uh, with some of the Dutch territories there where they were having some uh, wars around colonialism. And while he was there, he gave his heart to Christ uh, radical conversion, came back to the Netherlands and um, was just an evangelist until he got a flyer as a young man for a communist youth program in Poland, in Warsaw. And he said, you know what? It's a youth program. I'm a youth. I'm going to go. Yeah. And so he went, just he and his Bible. And when he got there, he started telling people about Jesus. And somebody said, you can't do that here but you should go to this place. And he met with a Christian pastor. Pastor brought him in, he tells the story often, and said, you know, so they had a service and he noticed, he said, nobody had Bibles. And he said, Pastor, why don't, do you have any Bibles? He goes, they took our Bibles and they told us they were giving us new ones, but that was years ago and we've never had any Bibles since. Mm. Can you imagine leading a church without a Bible? And he said, if you come back, could you bring some Bibles? And so Andrew began first with suitcases and mm -hmm. other things that he was getting creative to smuggle, and then eventually his Volkswagen and various other things. And he just began to do that. And then he started telling his story worldwide. And in the United States in the 80s, a ministry was formed to help promote what Brother Andrew was doing around the world. Yeah. It was a great experience leading Open Doors. We got a chance to work in over 60 different countries where... How long were you there? I was there nine years, okay. uh, from 03 to 2012, and uh, loved it. Met some of the greatest Christians you'll ever meet. Yeah. Men and women who yeah. have put their life on the line, who've been imprisoned for their faith. Wow. Uh, so radical, uh, so beautiful, and so many great uh, times. How did that challenge that. you? Mm. Well, in 2011, I wrote a book called The Privilege of Persecution, mm -hmm. and um, I wrote it with a pastor in... Uh, David Haig in Santa Clarita, California. And we wrote it from the standpoint of this, is that the American church, largely Western church in general, yeah. has not had to experience the persecution of the church in say China or Iran, or even North Korea in the worst place on earth to be a Christian. And yet they know them many things that we say we know, oh, but we uh, don't really. Um, we intellectually. We know it intellectually. We have a history of people who fled religious persecution to come here, but for 300 years, we've had freedom of religion in this country. Now, now I will talk about another time on these podcasts where we stand today in terms of that religious freedom that we 
have had as a heritage here. But in these countries, it's impossible to live the kind of Christian life that we do economically and, and everything else, politically. They have learned to see the church grow. They have learned what it really means to trust God completely. When you have nothing else, you know that Jesus is everything. Yeah. And in our uh, time there, we really got to see God open up our hearts about what does it look like to be a true believer in Jesus Christ. Mm. People who mm. would be willing to go to prison and did. Yeah. People who lost their jobs, lost their families mm -hmm. in many cases. Families disowned them mm. um, and yet still follow Jesus. And um, we would just go with one agenda. Every time we went into these countries, our agenda was simply to, to pray and to say, what do you need? And we'd go get it for them. Usually it was Bibles, but there were many times like for places around the world like North Korea, people just needed blankets. They needed, oh. in some cases, printing presses because they would print their own materials. They would willingly take the risk there, but we would, we would smuggle all these things into these countries. So it was an eye opener in every way. I went from one of the world's most influential, richest and affluent places on earth in Orange County, California at Saddleback Church immediately to go work with all of the, the hundreds of millions of Christians around the world who are every day wondering if they'll have freedom or they'll have uh, mm. their family. Uh, simply because they follow Jesus Christ. Quick story about that is the, the first week I was with Open Doors, I went to their international directors conference. So I'm listening at, as uh, you know, the head of the largest part of the organization in the United States, I'm listening to all these different countries tell their stories of persecution. One day, eight hours we did that. The next day, eight hours, all of these different countries. Yeah. The first day, my wife and I went back to our hotel room where the conference was taking place. We laid on our bed before dinner. You know, we had a little break before dinner. And we just wept. We were like, can we do this? Really? Can we listen? Can we know that this level of suffering, people being martyred for their faith, people being tortured for their faith, and can we endure this? And we just said, God, if we're going to do this, it's going to be you that enables us to do this. And Ironically, nine years later, it's that very experience that I believe uh, just radically changed my understanding of the way God is at work in this world. He works through the things that we, it, the Bible says it very, very clearly. You know, he works through the powerless to shame the powerful. He yeah. works through the, the ones without education to teach those who say they're educated. Yeah. And that's the experience we had all throughout the world in the persecuted church. So from Open Doors, mm -hmm. then you went. Then we went to, um, we started an impact investing company. Uh, myself and uh, a couple other guys, uh, we formed a company called Sequoia. And Sequoia was uh, a ministry-focused impact investing firm that invested mostly in South Africa. We had uh, met with some South African business leaders in 2010 at the uh, Lausanne Congress on World Evangelization. I was yeah. there. We had some really good exposure there, and we began a relationship with them that we were bringing investors from the United States into some businesses in South Africa that were missionally focused, that uh, flower business, uh, egg businesses, things that raised, uh, that did business, yeah. but as an outflow of their corporate ethos, they gave that money to missions that they were associated with. Yeah. So orphanages and housing in the... Uh, 
townships of South Africa. It was really, really a wonderful experience doing that. Yeah. As we were doing that, of course, we had to raise money. We had to raise capital for that sort of investment work. And while that was happening, I was uh, recruited by um, Biblica, the International Bible Society, in Colorado Springs to take on leadership of that organization in 2014. So um, made the choice with our partners in South Africa to do that and um, took on Biblica, the oldest Bible society in the world. Really? Well, no, it's second to the, the Foreign Mission Bible Society in England, but it was the first one in the United States. My friend Roy Peterson at American Bible Society, they're the biggest. <laughs> yeah. They're the most well-known American Bible Society, a great group, but uh, we actually birthed them in New York City. We were the really? New York Bible Society then, in, and in 1809, they uh, requested the plates yeah. to print Bibles for the Wild of America, Ohio and West. <laughs> and, um, and so uh, we were... Well, back then, I'm sure it was Wild so and West. So we... we you know, with the blessing of the board of directors at the time of the American of the New York Bible Society launched the American Bible Society, and we've stayed focused for many years, really up until the 1980s, in the New York area, working with uh, New York City um, uh, and uh, basically doing everything that uh, the Bible societies are known for: distributing Bibles into hospitals and prisons yeah. and various other things in New York City. We did Ellis Island for the entire time, the American immigration programs. Wow. We gave out, um, there are approximately 11 million uh, Americans who came through Ellis Island during the years it was operating. Yeah. And uh, Biblica, the New York Bible Society then, gave out 10 million Bibles <laughs> during that time. What uh, was it like for you to take over an organization that had that much history? Mm. Mm. That, I mean, that much rich American history. It was a history lesson myself because the Bible has played such an incredible role in not only the pilgrims and the, you know, the Puritans when they came here, but the whole founding of the American West. Yeah. The whole founding of this country was done alongside the economics of it was the spiritual component. Missionaries from every denomination, Baptist, Presbyterian, Methodist, Episcopal, they came to the West. They established churches and schools and hospitals, all on the Bible. The Bible was the motivating force. So everywhere we've gone around the country in antique stores, you'll find New York Bible Society Bibles in antique stores from the mid-1800s, the early 1900s. Yeah. The American history at, at Ellis Island is really fascinating and very personal for me. Uh, my grandmother came over from Norway in 1912. She came on a ship. I was able to go to Ellis Island, see her name on that ship, mm. on the ledger for the ship that she came in on <laughs> in April of, of uh, 1912. And fascinating story is now I'm leading Biblica, and I'm, I've become aware of our work as the New York Bible Society. It at Ellis Island with all of these millions of Bibles. And the unique thing about working with an organization that's 200 years old is you have 200 years of annual and quarterly reports on what they were doing. Yeah. We, <laughs> I went back. Now, this is really where it gets amazing. I went back to April of 1912. Yeah. And the list of Bibles given out in different languages 
The ship my, my grandmother came on had 38 adults on that ship. Yeah. And there was a total of 44. Some children came over that were from Norway. Yeah. They had made a stop in England. They had picked up some other nationalities. But there were 44 Norwegians on that ship, 38 adults. For April of 1912, the New York Bible Society gave out 44 Norwegian Bibles. <laughs> Can you imagine my grandmother in 1912 and I'm in Colorado Springs leading Biblica yeah. in 2015 and I see that we gave my grandmother a Norwegian Bible when she came over to this country. Wow. That's America. That's history. That's family. It's yeah. all rolled up and together. So you were with Biblica then for how long? Was it two three years, years, three years? Three years until what we did was we really, Biblica was having some challenges economically, fiscally. Uh, we ended up having to reorganize our international work. Um, Biblica has over 80 uh, modern language translations in the largest languages around the world. And we also represent a partner to the, the Bible translation work of Wycliffe and SIL yeah. and yeah. all of the, the major Bible translators through the Every Tribe and Every Nation Alliance that's there. And what we were able to do is we, were, we worked with all of those smaller language translating groups as the reference Bible. So if yeah. you're in West Africa translating a, um, a small dialect in, in Burkina Faso or something like that, yeah. you would use the Biblica French translation as approximate translation between the Greek and Hebrew and the local language. Yeah. Most everybody there spoke that proximal language, whether it's English or French or Russian or some other yeah. uh, language was being used. And so our modern language translations around the world have been used in that way. Um, so we were able to uh, reorganize around a more uh, service-oriented model rather than a, a, a sales or licensing model. We do have, uh, Biblica owns the copyright on the New International Version of the Bible. Yep. It's the world's largest uh, version uh, in terms of sales every year and, and that kind of thing. But our heart was always ministry. It was always that ministry from the very beginning. Mm. When I left Biblica, um, we had tripled the number of donors. Uh, we had Ooh. really recaptured the missional uh, part of that. Yeah. Um, in, the, in the recent history, I've been doing consulting with a number of different other nonprofits. 25 years as a CEO and um, leader of ministries, fundraiser, as well as ministry strategy and so forth, gave me some capacity. Some of my good friends in ministry in different places said, hey, why don't you come in and help us with our leadership structure, help us with our strategy, and also help us with our fundraising. So, And that's kind of how I ended up down in uh, Florida. So um, Matt Hurd and I talked about what a large church like Northland Church in Orlando could use. And my skill sets lined up immediately. But my original thought was, I'll come in as a consultant and mm -hmm. I'll help. Yeah. But as I was telling uh, some guys over a cigar uh, Friday night in 82 degree weather, not 32 <laughs> degree weather, we're sitting here right now. I told him, I said, I said, uh, yeah, I'll do consulting. And Matt said, well, I don't think we need consultants. I think we need pastors. Mm. We need somebody who's going to come and put their shoulder to the wheel here and really help us take it to the next level of where we can go to influence uh, this city for Christ. Well, so in, I, in my experience with you and the way we've gotten to know each other, from what it seems like from an outsider's perspective, 
this just feels like it's a really good fit for this season yeah. where, where it's taken all these different skill sets that you've learned over the last 30 plus years and really kind of put it into a nice little package yeah. in a position where you can really start to use those skills and that experience and those passions yeah. and those gifts and talents and, and really pour into that church. Absolutely. And it's been a remarkable things that I didn't anticipate God has, has brought me into. I anticipated doing this really as an organizational uh, love, you know, love of organizations, love of the way people can flourish in those organizations and they can mm -hmm. find their purpose and their passion and, and live that out. And I'm all the way back to my Saddleback days, you know, bringing those things to the table with people. But what I found is every dimension of ministry is there. I mean, we have an incredible ministry to the special needs community. Ooh, that's and, cool. That's, and that's fantastic. Is Kudos. The Kudos. best church in America, from my humble opinion, at integrating special needs adults and children all the way through in our program. So all of our kids' programs are wired up for having special needs kids in their programs with them. So the kids that come through the high school, all the way through the young adult programs, it's never a thing to have your ministry and then we have a separate special needs ministry. It's all integrated. And even in the worship service, we have a special needs worship leader in our, on our platform on our Saturday night services. Oh, and it's such a blessing. Um, another thing that's, that's been opened up to me from my background is in the spring, I'll be going to, back to Cairo, Egypt to Khazar El Dobara Church for their partners program because we've been partners at Northland Church with Khazar El Dobara. Khazar El Dobara was our key church in Cairo, in all of Middle East for Open Doors yeah. and for Biblica. So it's a remarkable sort of full circle ministry experience there. So we love it. We're enjoying the season and timing is everything in God's life, right? So we're here. Between Northland and when you left Biblica, mm. you said you did a lot of consulting, but it was also kind of a wilderness season for you, wasn't it? Where you went through just a time of refinement and just wilderness. You know, I know a lot of guys in ministry will point to a season in their life where that is the case. And in my life, I've always felt most comfortable, not as a consultant, not as a hired gun, but as somebody who came in and really invested in an organization to build yeah. into the lives and people. Yeah. And you're right. I mean, those months um, up until this fall, really about a 20-month period, I had some very, very wonderful long-term engagements. Uh, I had a year with uh, pro-life ministry in, in Colorado Springs called Save the Storks as mm -hmm. chief operating officer there as an interim. I did some work for some anti-human trafficking organization. I did some work for some incarcerated families uh, mm -hmm. ministry. They're wonderful, wonderful things. Got to see a broader picture. So yeah, I would say the that season brought a number of really rewarding experiences, uh, including long-term uh, year with uh, pro-life ministry in Colorado Springs called Save the Storks. So yeah. was a year of uh, interim COO there, loved that, Love continue to love that ministry. Did some other work with anti-human trafficking organization, did, did work with a, an organization in Pueblo that's uh, dealing with incarcerated families and yeah. some other, I would say, uh, excellent organizations. But in my heart, 
where I was, I was still longing for that place where I could be on a team, yeah. in a team, and uh, in some ways lead that team. Yeah. And it was very hard to think at the age I'm at with the experiences I've had that I was just going to be sort of that hired gun brought in as a consultant. Yeah. You know, that's not my best. It's not the way you're wired. It's not the way I'm wired, right. So. Yeah. The beautiful thing was God brought this opportunity at Northland along just at the right time in his way, and and it had that sense. So when Matt said, we need pastors, I just said, okay, God, if this is what you want, I'll do it. It's not the place I would choose, because we've been moving west ever since I grew up. But I know that he has a bigger plan, and he's got a big smile on his face when we say we'll never go to some place. <laughs> and uh, my parents ended up you know, their lives living in Orlando before they passed away. So I knew Orlando quite well. Yeah. It's really been great to see how God had orchestrated all of that behind the scenes. Carl Muller, let's get to rapid fire questions. Okay. Hey everyone, before we get to Carl's rapid fire segment, I'd like to talk about today's sponsor, you. I recently received a note on Facebook that said, Steve, I've stumbled onto your podcast and I've really been enjoying it. Thanks for being a part of loosening legalism's grip on my heart. I got to be honest, this moved me like no other message I've received thus far. You'll hear my story in January, but I came out of a legalistic background and it nearly drove me away from the faith. Carl, Kay, and I have a heart to take this message to more people. Right now, we're paying out of pocket to grow this. I'm paying my editors, I'm paying my web developer, I'm donating my time for interviewing, recording, etc. But if what we've done through the group, through the meetings, through this podcast have made an impact on you, please consider a year-end tax-deductible donation. You can go to paypal.me slash holysmokesclub and make a donation there. As always, there's a link in the show notes, but again, paypal.me slash holysmokesclub. Thanks. Now, on to Carl Muller's rapid-fire questions. Rapid-fire! Fire. Cigars or pipe? Cigars, for sure. I did smoke a pipe in college. I think I was trying to be more intellectual than I probably have ever been. But I love cigars, and I love Maduro. Cigars, for sure. All right. Favorite cigar? Oh, there's been so many good ones we were saying before uh, recently, but I have to go with Liga 9. Uh, Drew Estates, just about anything Drew Estates does. T-52 is a good one. But that Liga 9 is my special celebratory cigar. Best dollar-for-dollar dollar cigar. Ah, uh, well, I mentioned the Providencias. I love what Reed's done there. And uh, the Trinitas, I think, is a dollar-for-dollar dollar great smoke. The uh, Hoya de Nicaragua Black is also a really great one. Uh, uh, Palmer Holt from North Carolina turned me on to that one. And uh, love that for sort of got nothing to do except enjoy a good cigar and maybe a, uh, a nice adult beverage. And um, that's what I'll light up a lot. All right, your go-to place to get smokes. I'm an online guy. I go uh, Cigars International usually. They have great assortments. But now that I'm in Orlando, Corona. Corona Cigar. Corona, man. It's Corona Cigar Company. Corona right? Cigar Company Incorporated. And their downtown is a must-do when you're in 
when you're in Orlando, but they have two other, uh, one up in the north in Lake Mary, near where we are. And I've again, been to the Lake Mary one. Shout just, out to Lake Mary. Yeah. It's a great little place to sit and enjoy a, oh a nice day in Orlando. All right, favorite liquid pairing with your smoke? You know, I, for years I was a scotch guy. I loved, uh, uh, you know, uh, Glenlivet, uh, Glenmorangie, great, and I still do. But over the last two years, I've really become a bourbon guy. And uh, Woodford Reserve, double barrel, it's an epic moment. <laughs> All right. There's a little story behind this, so I, and I kind of know the answer. How did you get involved with Holy Smokes? The first initial point of Holy Smokes contact was I was at Biblica. Now, I'd been, I'd been having cigars with a men's group in California since my Saddleback days. So yeah. early 2000. Uh, started hanging with uh, a group of men's guys, and for the next 15 years, we really were mm -hmm. brothers in arms. Yeah. Uh, grill, smoke, <laughs> enjoy, you know, good glass of wine, good yeah. bourbon. Yep. But I went to Colorado Springs and uh, had a wonderful job, had great people at work, was sitting every night, though, or not every night, but often on my back porch, looking out over the front range, watching the sun go down smoking a cigar or having a glass of wine and being by myself. And one of the guys at Biblica, Tom Davis, who's in Barcelona, Spain right now. Tom's a good dude. Offered me the opportunity to meet up with this group of guys. He goes, you like cigars? He said, you wish it. I forget how it came up with us, but it came up and he said, you, you really need to meet with these guys at Holy Smokes. They're a bunch of ministry leaders in town who get together and have an adult beverage and, and have a cigar. And I said, wow, it'd be great. And he, he says, I'll make you a member. So he made me um, a Holy Smokes member yeah. in the secret Facebook group. And I started seeing these posts by Kay. And maybe I didn't read it very closely or whatever, but I thought Kay was a woman. <laughs> I thought the name Kay was a woman's name. Yeah. And so I was like, felt really uncomfortable texting a woman to say, hey, let's get together and have a cigar. And Finally, Tom came back to me and said, so did you get connected? I said, well, I haven't really gone to anything yet. I've seen a couple things posted. And um, this was way before it was like super filling yeah. up my feed all the time. Yeah. But yeah. when he, uh, he said, no, Kay's a guy. <laughs> and I went, what? And so I got into that, uh, met Kay and Steve Grison over at the Cigarage, uh, John Stone Street's place. Yeah, And as they say, the rest is history. Got a chance to uh, meet up with Kay, talk about ministry, talk about life. Yeah. And uh, it was an exciting, beautiful thing. And it's been better and better ever since. Got to know the Godfather. <laughs> the Godfather of Holy Smokes, Kay Hidamine. All right, favorite cigar experience? Favorite cigar experience? I'd have to say I was overseas in Cairo and um, had a real live Cuban cigar yeah. Yeah. and enjoyed the fellowship of uh, a couple other cigar-smoking brothers yeah. whose names I won't reveal because of their work yeah. in the Middle East. And we really shared uh, from our hearts about what God was doing in this part of the world. And it uh, was a great answer to prayer. All right, Star Wars or Star Trek? Oh, definitely Star Wars. Probably was the first transcendent movie experience I ever had. 
<laughs> and now that I'm in Orlando, I got to go to the to yeah, the big Star deal Wars down World. there. I haven't had a chance to do that yet, but I'm going to do it. Marvel, DC. Were you a superhero guy growing yeah, up? Yeah, yeah, not so much, really. Okay. I mean, but I enjoyed the series, especially enjoyed the emotion in the last one. Uh, I thought that was really a next step for them. I think that was really powerful. It was good. Favorite food? For me, I'm a steak guy. I love good steaks on a grill. And, uh, you know, anything associated with steak is really good, like good potatoes. I guess that's just sort of the way, you know, we were wired. We were wired to be carnivore, so. <laughs> Dogs, cats, neither, or both? I'm a dog guy. We've had... But you're allergic to cats, too. I'm allergic so. to cats. That's a problem. But, uh, but no, I think cats have a secret plan to rule the world, and I'm not really sure about that. <laughs> Dogs, on the other hand, they are uh, the quintessential companion. We've had uh, golden retrievers mostly, and uh, right now we have a yellow lab, and she's awesome. Her name is Ray, R-E-Y, yeah. from Star, Star Wars. Wars. So there yeah. you go. Um, Last three, what has Holy Smokes meant to you? For me, Holy Smokes is the way in which men are wired primarily. I think women have a tremendous role to play in the growth and the development of Holy Smokes as a movement. But what I've always loved is the fellowship of men around a cigar yeah. causes us to pause and to reflect and to think about things at a deeper level. Yeah. I'm one of the guys that when you have cigars, you have time. And time is such a rare commodity in our mm. society. I have a picture of myself at uh, one of my friends from back in the day when I was in college and we were at his uh, bachelor party. It's Bob Flayhart's bachelor party. Okay. And we're sitting around with uh, Heineken and cigars. Yeah. And, you know, I can look back, that's over 30 years ago now. Yeah. And that is exactly the kind of experiences that I've always had. Around cigars, it's the fellowship, it's the community, yeah. Yeah. and it is, um, it's remarkable. If you could have a holy smoke with any three people throughout history, living or deceased, who would they be? Uh -oh. I can't name Jesus. Oh, I'd have a smoke with C.S. Lewis. Okay. Uh, Charles Spurgeon. Yeah, two favorites. Famously, Spurgeon was critiqued and by one of his parishioners, and she said, you smoke too many cigars. And he said, I don't. I only smoke one at a time. <laughs> Um, and the third? The third, I'd have to say, I'd like to smoke a cigar with Arnold Schwarzenegger. I really would. His history, his life story is so fascinating to me, and I'd love to use a cigar as a great platform to share the gospel with him. Mm. All right, last question. If we're meeting one year from today and I got a bottle of champagne, what are we celebrating? Wow. We could be celebrating a lot of things. I think we'd be celebrating um, some things at Northland Church that I think we're working towards, which is um, creating an entirely new way of reaching into the uh, special needs community Ooh. and really Ooh. creating a church yeah. that reflects, I think, God's love for all people in a way that is rare 
in the modern evangelical megachurch. So holy smokers, especially in the Orlando area, Northland sounds like a heck of a church to get plugged into, and especially if you have that desire, that love to reach out into that community, that special needs community, I'd really recommend to take a look. And uh, if not, if you're not in the Orlando area, but this is something in your heart, I could assume that people could reach out to you guys for some modeling, some guidance on how to get involved in that and how to really help their local church to embrace that community that is so often felt neglected because they just don't understand how to minister to them. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. For us, our access ministry, it's really amazing, and it's given us so many opportunities to uh, reach into the families all around any church, any community that feel isolated and alone. And uh, it's a tremendous church. It's got incredible people. And yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing that happen more and more. Carl Muller, one of my fellow co-hosts on the Holy Smokes podcast. I want you to start recording, my man. Yeah, we got to get set up down there. Because we we, we, got to get some of those stories that that you have access to down there. So thanks for being on the Holy Smokes podcast. And uh, I'm going to be coming out there sometime early 2020 and... We'll get some stuff recorded. We'll have the fire lit for you, bro. It'll be great. Thanks for being on. Thank you.